How many remember the economist Milton Friedman? Milton Friedman, you guys remember him? Great guy, you know, I didn't know him personally, but he seemed like a great guy to me, always very friendly. And he did this one little illustration where he would talk about the free market system. He would hold up a pencil. He's like, I'm holding up a yellow pencil, common yellow pencil. Do you know that no single person could make a pencil? No single person could make a pencil. And then he went into the whole why and wherefore. He says, stop, you know, stop and think about this for a minute. There's wood in this pencil, and that wood was probably logged somewhere out in Washington State, and there, was a, there were lumberjacks, and there was that whole operation, the sawmill, and then they had to take it and send it to the pencil factory. But we're not done yet. You know, what about the graphite? Well, the graphite, it was, would, would have been mined uh, somewhere in South America and gone through that whole process of making it into that refined product and then sent to the pencil factory. But again, we're still not done. There's the bitter rubber, which would have come from Malaysia by way of Africa. Uh, we have the little ferrule around the end, which at that time was brass. I think it's probably aluminum now, but he would say, well, you know, the brass, you had the copper that would have come maybe from, oh, Utah, let's say, and the zinc from a mine in Peru, and on and on it would go until by the time you're holding that pencil, you have the work of thousands of people in your hand for just pennies, and that was the, you know, that was like the miracle of the free market. And it was a good illustration. I don't want to talk to you about the free market today. I mean, I'm all for the free market, don't get me wrong, but I just don't want to talk to you about that. What I want to talk to you about is something else that no single person could take credit for, and that's your conversion. Think for a moment about your, and some people go, what's a conversion? Well, conversion, biblically, is what we're talking about when we mean how you went from being a child of darkness, lost, dead in your trespasses and sin, to now a child of light in the kingdom of, of God's Son and, uh, and born again on your way to heaven. How did that happen? Well, it wasn't any one single person. It was, it was absolutely a miracle. And so today the big idea is just simply this. Cherish the miracle of your conversion. I would hope that today as you leave, you're going to just have a sense of worship about what God has done in your life by way of your conversion. There's sort of four miracles attached to this that we're going to look at today, four miracles. Three of them kind of are causal. They sort of lead up to, they, they are part of why and how you were converted. And the other one is more like an attendant circumstance that's still needed. It's still needed. It comes after conversion at the moment and onward after, but it's also very much needed in the context of your conversion. So if the first three kind of fit with more like, uh, if you think of birth uh, and the things that lead up to birth, you know, this would be more like you're born, but then you have to have a mom and a dad taking care of you. Does that make sense? You got the layout? So three and then one, so four. That's how the addition thing works. All right, first of all, God's servants had to obediently go into the world. God's servants had to, for you to be converted, God's servants had to obediently go into the world. Take it all the way back to the beginning. By that, I don't mean Genesis 1-1, but I mean the beginning of the, uh, of the gospel commission that Jesus gave to his disciples, Matthew 28. Very famously known, probably everyone in here knows in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. We can pop those on up there. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that idea of going, somebody has to go. Book of Acts, 
What, right at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we had that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So again, marching orders. Go, take the gospel. Go wherever you, you can. The mission of the kingdom of God is the gospel, and it's the gospel preached from here onward, outward to the very ends of the earth. Last time we were looking at how God was working in Paul's life to get him where he was going. You remember that? We were talking about how do we know the will of God? How Paul learned the will of God for, for himself. And there were all these different ways that God was, some of it seemed very ordinary. Some of it was kind of common sense. Some of it, you know, he was, God was shutting doors and opening other ones and funneling them. And he got to Troas, you remember that? He sort of had his back to the sea. He was fresh out of Moses' staff, so he's stuck there for just a little bit. For like half a moment, he's in Troas, not knowing what to do. And in that night, he had a vision. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So what do they do? Where We left off that they had a vision, and God was telling them what they needed to do. I mean, it didn't, the guy was just like, come and, and help us. But they concluded this was, this was God and he was speaking to them. So they determined they got to go. They've got to go. And they obey. They leave Troas. Beautiful Troas. You all know Troas. Who'd want to leave Troas? But they get in a boat and they, they head out to uh, Samothrace, which is actually a beautiful island in the middle of the Aegean, about halfway across to the mainland, to, uh, to Macedonia. They get there in record time. Uh, the halfway point, then, they, then they, con- they continue on, they get to Neapolis. Um, not where Neap- Neapolitan pizza comes from, but anyway, Neapolis, Macedonia, there they, they head on down and they get to Philippi. Now, Philippi should sound familiar. Doesn't that have a little ring to it? Philippi. There's a book in the New Testament, a letter to the Philippians. Yes, these, these are the people. This is how the church at Philippi gets started. It's, this is Paul's work there. God directed them there. God did so much work. I mean, it's God. It's, always, it's God from beginning to end, and we can say that in one sense that is absolutely true, that in the sovereignty of God, he's at work there. He's directing. He gives them a, a tailwind, by the way. They, go, they, like, they, they, they say that the amount of time it took him uh, to get from Troas to Neapolis was just like, like as it's recorded in Luke, it's like a really record time. They made it in short order. So everything is just providentially leading them there. And yet we have to say that these men, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, they had to obey God for it to work out as it did. We can say, yes, they had to obey. They had to discern and obey what God was telling them and, and go where God was leading them. Poor Timothy, he had, uh, he, he had to sacrifice in order for that uh, to happen. They, they were obedient. Paul will write to the Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And then he goes on to say, but how will they hear if no one goes? If no one's sent, how, how will they? So, so the implication is someone needs to go. How many here can say that you know for a fact that there were a lot of people that, that had to go in order for you to become a believer in Jesus Christ today? That you know you stand on the shoulders of people, of a shoulder, standing on the shoulders. You know, I look back at it and I think of all the different people. Um, when I was about 20, my mom gave me a letter 
that uh, literally made me cry. Like, she, gave, she gives me this letter. She's like, I probably should have given this to you a lot sooner. But it was a letter written to me at, at the time of my birth. And it was my great-grandmother's roommate who would have long since been dead by this point. And she's like, well, I just want to be the first person to tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want you to, to come to know him, and I'm praying for you. And I get this when I'm like 20, and I'd become a Christian. I'm just reading that and just blubbering. It was, and I, or I think about the Gideons and bringing the New Testament and other people that God used in my life, and I bet every single person here can say the exact same thing. How far back do you think that goes? I love doing things like uh, genetic research stuff. Well, I don't do the research, but, you know, reading through the genetic stuff, like from 23andMe, I sent my stuff in. and It's, it's, it's just fascinating. How many have done that? And you're in, you're, oh, look at where all that's going. That's so cool, and you try to put it together with family names. Or you, you, I joined Ancestry for a brief time so I could try to track my family tree. You get all these, it's like, whoa, what? that's a weird name. Oh, I didn't know I had any Dutch in there or whatever the case might be. And it's just, it, it's just amazing. I think when we get to heaven, that if we want to know, that I think God's going to be able to line it out even better than Ancestry.com. Like if we wanted to know, Lord, show me how many people we're affected by how many people, by how many people for the gospel to get to me. Could you imagine that? The thousands and thousands and thousands of intricate moments in time and relationships and so forth in order and all the acts of obedience by which the gospel came to you. And that, isn't that just, I mean, to me, that is a mind-blowing thing. It should encourage us. Frankly, it should encourage us to be faithful as well. Because if it took all those thousands and thousands of people for it to ever get to you, aren't we supposed to be part of that same, shouldn't, shouldn't we light up in that, in that sort of Ancestry.com spiritual connection that somebody's going to have down the road? We want that. We want that. Anyway. Secondly, God's servants had to speak. They had to actually open their mouth. Check out verses 13 through 14. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate. Now, Luke's with them now, so he's, so he's saying we. I, I don't know if you noticed that. It just, just happened like a few verses ago. We went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Paul and, and company didn't just get to Philippi and, and, and just stay there at the dock. They, they went looking for Jewish people because that was always Paul's pattern, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. Normally, where would they have gone? The synagogue, absolutely. They would have looked for Jewish people logically at the synagogue, but it appears that Philippi was not such a very uh, godly area. There had not been that many Jews, apparently, who had come to Philippi, it took 10 men, 10 men, uh, uh, Jewish men, for there to be the quorum necessary for a synagogue. And it looks like they didn't have a quorum. They had some Jewish ladies, and when Paul and his company get there, they're like, well, there's no synagogue, we'll just have to go down by the river, because I guess that was a logical place. 
That's sort of putting two and two together, but it seems that that was a place that they would go if there was no synagogue. They would get, you could do ceremonial Jewish washings and that kind of thing because of the water there, and that was like the fallback if you didn't have a synagogue. Really quickly, where would you go if you got to a city and there was no church? No church whatsoever. How would you find Christians? Well, if it's not Sunday, you would go to Chick-fil-A. Right? I don't know. You're on your own after that. I don't know what to tell you. And if it's a, if it's a Sunday, you're not even going to even go there. So, Okay, well, they get there. They sit down. They speak to the women. We, we, we know that what they're telling them, of course, is the gospel. Luke doesn't just come right out and say he was telling them the gospel, but it's clear that that's what was going on. They sit down. They start a discussion. They speak. Lydia heard. Paul's talking. God's causing her to pay attention and and she gets and understands the gospel. If people are going to respond to the gospel, they have to hear the gospel. You can't respond to it if you haven't heard it. Did someone speak the gospel to you at some point? How many remember it like it was just a very distinct one moment in time and that was it? And you, you heard the gospel and you went, yep. And you, anybody like that? Yeah, couple. I think a lot more of you are probably like me where it's like I remember that person said something and I remember that person and I remember I heard that here and I heard it there and it was like all just a big kaleidoscope until that final moment where it sort of, you know, finally latched hold and I understood. But one way or the other, what is true is God moved people in obedience to not only go but to actually open their mouth. How amazing is that? You go, I don't know, maybe it's amazing. All right, doubter, <laughs> if you don't think it's amazing, how hard is it for you to open your mouth and tell anyone about Jesus? If God only had people like you and me ready to speak the gospel, would anybody know the gospel today? Huh? I mean, would as many people know the gospel today? And I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty, but I'm saying look at what God did that you have heard and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of how many people didn't want to speak because they didn't want to, didn't want to suffer, but God pushed them and moved them and they spoke the gospel and it came to the next and the next and the next and it got to you. That is, the, that is the cost of your conversion. All of those thousands of people and thousands of, of instances. The Lord had to open your heart. The Lord had to open your heart. God opened Lydia's heart. It just comes right out and says that. By God's providence, she was there that day. A lot of things had come together. She was a seller of purple goods. That seems like a weird profession, doesn't it? Like, I only sell purple. Well, I'd really like a nice, yeah, nope, sorry, only purple. <laughs> you have to move down there to get the seller of orange or whatever the case might. It was a different age. It was a different time. We understand that. Purple wasn't really an easy commodity. Thyatira was a place, a center where this, this purple dye was made, and so she was able to work that and then go to places like, apparently go to Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony that had a lot of money floating around. And so this woman, with her, her expertise, takes these purple goods, and she can make a pretty good living there at Philippi. She's also a near convert to Judaism. 
she's a, she's a worshiper of God, we're told there. That means she was attracted to Yahweh. She was attracted uh, to the God of the Old Testament. She'd probably turned away from, from the, the false pantheon of Greek and Roman gods. But she had not fully made the full commitment to becoming altogether a a Jew, but yet there she was among the Jewish people worshiping Yahweh. And as she listens, there at the end of 14, it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. Don't, don't you love that? The, the sovereign, or you don't, some people don't, some people read that and go, quick, let's skip past that, because I don't like that kind of stuff. But that is the sovereign work of God miraculously opening her heart such that she hears in a way, and not only does it make a kind of logical sense, but it falls upon a heart that is receptive. You may recall this is not the first time in the book of Acts that we have seen the sovereignty of God in the salvation. Consider this back in Pisidian Antioch, chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Faith, the Bible teaches, is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. Now, do we have to believe? And is that belief which we express, by which we trust in Christ, is it genuine? Yes. Does it, is it robotic? No. Yet, it is a gift of God. God is the one working it. God is the one who opens the heart for that to be received. This is what we call in the trade, <laughs> the theological trade, uh, we call that um, effectual calling. Write that down if you want. That's a, that's a term. Effectual calling, meaning God, when he calls, he calls effectually. It happens. Look at Romans 8.30. It says, and those whom he predestined, I know a lot of people don't like that word. It's there. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now that is referred to sometimes as the golden chain because there's a chain of, of, of all that's involved in salvation from the beginning in time, before, before, before time even, in God, and then all the way through to the time when we're in heaven, when we're in glory. And it says all of those here are the ones here, are the ones here, are the ones here. It's all an unbroken chain. We have been called and we will be glorified. In John's gospel, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. God called Lydia. God was at work. God, it says, specifically opened her heart to hear. Now, the text doesn't bother to tell us that she believed. It's, it's, it's implied. You put the two and two together, you get to the point that she believed. It, it says that she was attentive. Next thing we know, she's getting, um, getting baptized. But the emphasis is on God's work. I think that's part of why it doesn't even mention belief at that moment, because Luke wants us to see the work of God opening Lydia's heart. Do you think Lydia was a hard case compared to you and me, that that's why God had to open her heart? How many read it that way? Like, I don't know. You know, I didn't need that, because <laughs> you know, I was just born good. Um, I was always going to believe in God. But you know, some people are really, really obstinate, like take Paul, I mean, they just had to knock him down right on the ground and blind the poor guy in order to get him there, 
And Lydia, I don't know what her problem was, but God had to just get in there with, with the jaws of life and crank open her heart to get the... But you know, I was just going to be fine the way... You know what? We all had to have our heart open. If you are here in Christ today, and this is the beauty, and this is, this is where worship really comes into it, God had to call you forth from the dead, just like he called Lazarus out of the grave. Lazarus was not sitting in the grave going, doggone, I'm dead. Mm, I got to get out of this death thing. This is terrible. I need to wake up and live. No, he didn't give that one thought. He was dead, see? Which means he wasn't thinking about coming back to life. And Jesus spoke the word, Lazarus, come forth. And all at once, Lazarus is like, oh, hey, I'm going to come forth. Because <laughs> Jesus is calling me, you see. Jesus is, is, is making me to, to know his voice. Now, you may struggle to comprehend that. And, and, and I, I'm not going to say that I don't struggle at certain points to understand the sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation. But this work of God ought to leave us breathless. When you finally get it, when that coin drops and you go, wait, you're saying to me, that I would not be a believer in Jesus Christ today. I would not be in union with him, enjoying the benefits of salvation with all the hope of heaven. I wouldn't have any of that unless God had done a work in me. You mean it wasn't because I was smart enough? I couldn't even work a Rubik's Cube when I was a kid. I'm that dumb. I mean, I, yeah, I didn't have that. I didn't have anything. I, I look back, I go, I didn't have anything going for me. What did I, God, God opened the heart. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be sitting here. You wouldn't be singing these songs of worship. How many just felt like that was a great time of worship today and you experienced just, just a heart lifted up toward God? You wouldn't have felt that if God hadn't opened your heart. Do you understand that? You wouldn't be here. You'd be out in the world. You'd be, you'd be trying to make a dime or, you, or you'd be doing something stupid. If it had been me, I wouldn't be here today. I'd have been dead because I would have done something stupid. I'm just that confident in my own basic stupidity I, I wouldn't God God had to do that that work okay I said earlier that the fourth miraculous aspect of this was going to be not leading up to or the cause of conversion but right with it sort of at that moment right after an attendant circumstance so think of the first three things we looked at as sort of the you know conception gestation birth now what we're talking about is more like, okay, you're born, and in biblical terms, that you know, they cut the cord, they take you, they rub your body down with salt, they wrap you in a, in a blanket, and they hand you over to your mother, and, and you start to nurse, and you, and you start to grow. Fourth idea here, God's people had to enfold you. God's people had to enfold you. A new believer needs the church the way a, a child that is born needs its mother and father. I'm taking this from verse 15. Now, I'm going to read a lot into this. I'm just, I'm warning you ahead of time. I'm going to read more in than might be there at the surface level. And you say, isn't that dangerous? Yeah, it's kind of like stepping on the top rung. How many have ever stopped, stepped on that forbidden top rung of the stepladder men? Oh, you're all living in OSHA. Okay, I got you. You're not supposed to, boys and girls, never step on that top step of the ladder. However, I will say this, that many of us at some point really needed that last step. Um, and you look at me and you go, and then some. Uh, 
So you just, you know, sometimes you know you're not supposed to, but you grab a hold of something and you just, you go ahead and go. I'm kind of doing that a little bit. I'm reading, I'm, and you'll see, and I'm going to make a case for it as we go through, but just understand, I get that I'm, I'm kind of importing a little bit here. You'll, you'll hopefully see this as we go along. So six, uh, 16, 15, after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Um, what I see here are two key aspects of the church, and I realize that the word church isn't mentioned here, so yeah, that be that as it may. Um, the first of those is baptism. You're baptized by believers. You're baptized within the context of a church. When a person is converted, they go from unbelief to now trusting in the Lord, they're new creatures in Christ. That is all true. That all happens on a spiritual level. It's between them and God. The Holy Spirit comes to live in their heart. God having opened their heart to the message of the gospel. They have a relationship with Christ. And you go, well, that all happened without the church necessarily having to, the local church having to be involved. But the thing is, is that having come to faith, a new believer needs the body. It's just like a newborn baby has to have a mother. And You do realize that, it's like 100% pretty much. Can you imagine a little kid born? Okay, mom, I got it from here. You'd freak out if your baby said that at birth. Uh, and that baby might make it, but, but all the rest of them aren't going to make it. They're, they're just not going to, unless they're a baby shark. To do, to do, to do. Uh, <laughs> then, they're, then, then they're fine. But a baby human, no. You, you, you're born, but then you, ha you have to be surrounded by that family. We need the church. We need to, to be surrounded by them. You see this in the act of, of back baptism here. So Luke sort of accelerates the story. Again, he doesn't talk a lot about the fact that she came to faith at that moment. It says, after she was baptized, and her household as well. So baptism, bear in mind, baptism is that outward sign of all of the, of, of the spiritual truth that, that is at play when you come to trust in Christ. You know, you've been born again. You've been cleansed of your sin. You've died to your old self. You're raised with Christ. You're, you have the Holy Spirit. And it shows that you're part of the church. Baptism indicates that you are part of the church. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 12. It says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now again, that's talking about, first and foremost, he's talking about that spiritual baptism which takes place unto itself when we believe. And how do we know that? Well, if you went to the passage where Peter's preaching to Cornelius and his household, while he's preaching the gospel, as those who are listening come to believe, they receive the Holy Spirit. And then Peter's like, well, we might as well baptize them because they've already gotten the Spirit. They've, in other words, they've already had the Spirit baptism. Now we're going to follow that with water baptism. In the book of Acts, after Pentecost, we're told, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day 3,000 souls. So when a person experiences this spiritual reality, which we could call spiritual baptism, remember Jesus came not to baptize with water, but to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So when a person has been had they received the Spirit, they've been baptized by the Spirit, they now are brought into the church, the local church, and, and they get baptized in water. If a person makes a credible profession of faith, they should be baptized. 
Now, you might at that point say, what do you mean a credible profession? Shouldn't we just baptize anyone that wants it? Should we just baptize anybody that says, I want to be baptized? Just go ahead and do it. It's on them. Just, just baptize them or don't baptize them. But if they say they want it, you should give it to them, right? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, and, and I'm going to kind of base it on this passage somewhat. But I want you to think about it with me for just a second. Um, I remember in my first church, there was a, there was a lady, and uh, she had been Muslim. I've talked about her before. But one one Sunday morning, it was kind of like the 5-2 meal, and she was sitting across from me, and she was saying, um, she was Iranian, and she said, Pastor Jay, I just, I love Jesus, and I want, I want to be a member of your church. And I said, okay, what do you believe about Jesus? And she proceeded to tell me. And it was about half of it was about sort of a Christian view of Jesus, and about half of it was a Muslim view of Jesus. In other words, it was not a full understanding biblically of who Jesus is. Not that you have to know the whole Bible, but I mean it didn't, it was not congruent with the biblical definition of who Jesus was. She couldn't accept that he was God, for instance. That was a, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm not there yet. And I'm like, well, okay, then you're not ready to be a member just yet. Don't give up. You keep reading, keep learning your Bible, keep coming to church and listening, but we're not, you know, we're, we're just not quite there yet. What if you had somebody that, that came, oh, I just came, became a Christian, but I happen to be, you know, a proud member of my local mafia, and I'm still intending to kill people. For money, it's my job. Can I get baptized? Would you baptize that person? No, because that person's making a profession of faith, but there's not a credible evidence that that person truly knows Jesus. So you baptize, you baptize people that, that can at least articulate a true, biblical, repentant faith, and they show that in their lives. Baptism. And connection with the church, church membership, go together. I'm really, like you can see, I told you I was going to just cram a bunch of stuff in here, but I think you'll see where I'm going. Membership is really just sort of a formalized way of keeping a record of those people that we recognize and have received as in baptism. So if somebody moves from another place, they've been baptized in another place, they come to the church, they say, I want to be identified with this particular local body. Membership is sort of the means by which we recognize their baptism and their connection with the body. When you get baptized, and you, or you become a member, depending on whether you are already a believer or baptized, the church then enfolds you. The church at that point, what the church is doing for you as a new convert, as, as a new believer, is the church is enfolding and surrounding you and is confirming that yes, we believe that you are part of the body of Christ. That's what's happening. Does that make sense? We're saying yes, we baptized you because we believed that you were truly a believer in Jesus. And then when we celebrate communion together, what we're essentially saying is we still, we still see ourselves this way. We still consider you to be part of, of that body. So far, it makes sense? Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. It's a little bit like when a, uh, if, if you were to plant a tree. Have, how many have ever planted a tree? Yeah? It's not that hard, is it? But you don't go take that, that new stick and just go stick it in the ground and go, good luck, young tree. Have at it. Do your best. What do you do? Ah, you dig around it. You put that little, that neat little whatever circle thing is. There's probably a name for that. I don't know what it is, but you sort of fence that in and you put mulch in it 
and you, and you put that little plastic corrugated pipe thingy around it so the deer won't eat on it, and, and you stake it down with cables and all that. What you're doing is you're saying this is such a new life, it needs all that support. The church is that to the new believer. And the other thing it does it, in doing that, not only does it confirm and define to you that you are a believer, it also protects the church. It keeps, it, it, it keeps the church from being well, for lack of a better word, polluted by those things which are not actually part of Christ. Think about if, if we had gone, going back to that young lady that I talked about, if she had just been received into the church and membership that day, oh, you want to be part of the church? Sure, we'll make you part of the church. What would have happened? Well, you're a member of the church, you can teach the children's church next week. How would that have gone over? We would have been teaching all our kids, you know, a half-Muslim Jesus for the next however many years that she would have been there. So you're protecting the church as well. I know this is kind of like a big smorgasbord of ideas I'm throwing into here, but look at what Lydia says here. And this, this, is, this, is, this is the part that the modern church in America has very little understanding for, but I think it's critical. And it relates to all these things that I've been talking about. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, she says. Here's what I think's going on there and how it ties into the church today. In baptism, what we're saying is we believe, based on your profession and what we see, we believe that you are making a credible profession that you are part of the body of Christ. Lydia is aware of that. She's just been baptized. And so what she's saying to Paul by, as, as a way of extension is to say, hey, you know, if, if, if you regard me in this way, if I'm part of the church, then come to my house because there's no church in Philippi yet. But when you get here, there sure will be because that's going to that's gonna kick off any minute now right there in, in my basement. Um, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, in essence, that's what's happening in baptism in the local church, that's what really membership is, is about in the local church, is it's saying, yes, we have judged you to be faithful to the Lord. And I bet some of you are cringing at the thought of that. What do you mean you've judged them to be faithful to the Lord? That is the role of the church. To say, yes, we've looked at your life, we've heard your profession, we've gone over these things with you, we understand you to know Jesus Christ as Savior and to be walking with him in grace by his mercy. You know, and all of what goes with that. Are you tracking with me? Are you, yeah, and, and to the extent that we turn from that and, and, and we just kind of go, you know what, let's just, let's just let any, let's just take all the, let's just take all the fences down and just let anybody, um, we, we, we start to lose the sense of what the church actually is and, and really what conversion is all about and the value of that. If you are a believer today, I want you to just think about that for a minute. Just think about how you got here. So many people that came before you had to be obedient. They had to obey God. They had to go. They had to speak. God had to open um, your heart to receive the message of the gospel. And, and then, if, if you are blessed, he had to give you the people of God to help you grow. You've experienced that, and I'm guessing that just about every person in here that I know that is walking with Christ can say that, then God has blessed you more than you can begin to understand, and, and it is just something you should cherish.
And let, it, and let it move you also to think about just your own responsibility, our responsibility collectively to preach the gospel, to open our mouths, to speak, to be obedient to God so that God can open people's hearts. If you're not a believer, I just encourage you, um, all I can do is, is do what Christians have been doing for the last 2,000 years. There's no magic to it. We haven't developed some new, better method of it, of getting people converted. It's the same old, same old. It's the same old beautiful story that, that God sent his son into this world to die for sinners. You are a sinner, and you need forgiveness of your sins. You need a new life. You need union with Christ. And when you believe upon the Jesus who came and died for your sins and was, was raised again by God on the third day, you will have life in his name. You will be converted. You, God will be taking you from darkness and bringing you into light. And if that happens, and when that happens, um, we want to enfold you. You need the church. If you're a new baby Christian, you need the people of God to come alongside of you, to hear your testimony, to hear your profession of faith. You know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be baptizing a few people to, to baptize you and to, and to welcome you and surround you with the love of God. And, uh, and by God's grace, if God wills it, we want to be that. For you, I do want to say something really quick before I pray. Um, somebody's going to be bringing up a rose and putting it in the vase today, and I, I wanted to explain that because uh, some people don't know why we put roses in the vase. If someone in our church has been involved in in a pro, in that process, you know, of being one of those people that that God used to bring somebody to faith, then we recognize it by a rose going in the vase. And sometimes the person that got saved is the one coming forward and not always. So when Sandy comes up here in a minute, um, I just want you to know Sandy has been a believer for quite some time, but God, but God, but God used her uh, and, and people, other people um, to lead someone to the Lord. So that's what that's, that's what that's about. Let's pray. Father, there's just so much uh, in, in uh, your word that informs us and and probably even changes, uh, changes our, our thinking or challenges our thinking. Maybe, maybe even today some people were challenged by, by some of, of this in your word. Um, Lord, we are, we are aware as, as we really study it that we can't claim any credit for our salvation. Yes, we had to hear and believe, but Lord, ultimately we weren't in control of those things and you called us out of death into life you took us out of darkness and you brought us into the kingdom of your son and we just give you glory for that we praise you we pray today that that our hearts if we weren't already in a place of worship which i think we were but uh but that you would even bring us even into a a higher place of worship when we see what you did to win us to yourself and we pray lord that you'll use us for the purpose of of uh continuing to preach the gospel to those who would hear we pray, Lord, that you will open hearts for it to be received and that maybe even today, Lord, someone would come and trust Christ and we would be able to welcome them into your kingdom. We ask this in his name. Amen.